Today we'll be looking at Psalm uh, 2, and if you would take your Bibles and turn to that Psalm, Psalm 2, as we reflect upon this beautiful Old Testament passage, passage that points us to Jesus. The psalmist begins with a question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Our Father, as we reflect upon this psalm today, remind us of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Remind us that he is reigning today over all. Remind us that he is coming again at the end of time to completely eradicate sin, death, and Satan and bring his rule to bear in an ultimate sense. Cause us today as we are watchful over human history that our focus would be first and foremost on Jesus and the realities of his kingdom. And we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, this theme today in the third Sunday of Advent is hope for those who watch. And as I've prayed, we watch for Jesus' second coming. That is, that's a hope that we have. That's part of watching. That's his second Advent. And we are to be preparing and watchful for that. And so the sermon today is really addressed in part to that ultimate watching preparation, watchfulness that we are to have for Christ to come again. But the fact that Christ is reigning today and he's reigning over all today means that we are to watch in him, that is live by faith in him today, being watchful, knowing that he is reigning and we live in and under the realities of his kingdom today, even though it may seem like the world is literally falling apart around us. And so what I want us to know is that, yes, there's hope for watching for us as we look to the future for Christ to come again, but there's hope for us as we watch today the circumstances of human history unfold because our God reigns and we are his and nothing's going to stop him from bringing about his purposes. I feel like just having the benediction now and let's go home. But I've got a few more things to say. A recent survey was conducted by the Chapman University. It was done in April of this year, so it's just a a few months dated. 
and they, they were looking at the, the major fears, the, the top fears that Americans have. And so they have a list of 10. I feel like David Letterman, the top 10. So here they are. I would, I, now this is April of 2015, so I would like to ask, what do you think the top fear of Americans is, according to this particular survey? Well, since you asked, it is corruption in government at 58%. Secondly, cyber terrorism at 44%. Thirdly, corporate tracking of personal information at 44.6%. Terrorist attacks at 44.4%. Government tracking of personal information at 41.4%. Hope you're getting all this down. There'll be a test afterwards. And then bio-warfare at a staggering 40.9%, identity theft at 39.6%, economic collapse at 39.2%, running out of money in the future, that comes in at 37.4%. Credit card fraud rounds out the top 10. Well, that's the survey, and I would suspect today, if that same survey was given, that terrorism would trump corruption in government and probably be much more of a fear than the mere 58%. I mean, isn't this a fearful time in the life of every American, especially after Paris and San Bernardino? So is there really hope for those who watch the circumstances of human history unfold? And we need to be upfront and honest about the fact that there's much going on today that even for the stoutest Christian generates fear. And then... Let's add to this list the fact that many of us may not be fearful, but certainly concerned about the unbelievable moral and spiritual decay of our own country. And then add to that maybe a fear, maybe a concern of the church becoming more and more irrelevant in the town square, that is, in our culture. Is this really the season for all this joy and celebration and expressions of peace? Is there hope for those who watch the events of human history unfold day in and day out? Well, Psalm 2 shows us that indeed there is hope. There is hope for those like you and me who put our faith and trust in Jesus and who live under and in the realities of his kingdom. And in the midst of all of these troubling things that are happening, not just in our country, but in our world today, that would move some of us, if not most of us, to at least be concerned, if not fearful, that the topic of this sermon is a phrase that I captured from an old Bible scholar, Matthew Henry, of generations ago, who, who, said, who used this phrase that, that, that Psalm 2 really brings us to have a cheerful 
confidence in Christ. We do have hope, and it's because of Jesus and the realities of His kingdom. And we can have a cheerful, hopeful confidence in Him even in the darkest of times in our personal lives and in our corporate lives as a church and in our lives as a nation and even as citizens of this world. Now, our text today, Psalm 2, interestingly enough, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and rightfully so, because Psalm 2 is all about Jesus. And hopefully you pick that up as we were reading it. It's about the nations, the kings of this earth, rising up and opposing Jesus, but to no avail. It is about the kingdom of Christ and the reign of Christ being greater than his father David. And in fact, Jesus is the one who has absolute and universal rule. Jesus is the one who sits upon David's throne, that prophecy in the Old Testament, forever. And this psalm also calls us, it it not only causes us to face the realities of the opposition that is waged against Jesus and his kingdom, it not only causes us to consider the realities of Jesus' reign and his kingdom, but we find the third point, the last part of the psalm in verses 10 through 12, it is an exhortation to all of humanity, rulers and ruled alike, to submit to Christ and to live in dependence upon him. And so today we want to talk about these, these realities. And the theme is simply this, Christians are to have a cheerful confidence in Christ by being watchful for Him, that is, by living by faith in Him in light of the realities of His kingdom. And so there are three points. You'll find them on page six of your, your sermon, or your bulletin, rather, the sermon outline, the conflict, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, the kingdom, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, and then the exhortation to all peoples, the last three verses of the psalm. So let's begin with the conflict. Here in in Psalm chapter 2 and in verses 1 through 3, we we find, first of all, the, the psalmist crafting this psalm in a way that would show the kings of the earth speak. They, they divulge their little plot to overthrow Christ and his kingdom. And then the second part is in, in verses 4 through 6, God speaks. He first laughs, and then he speaks and gives the solution to this little plot that is in vain to overthrow Jesus and his kingdom. So let's first look at verses 1 through 3. The kings of the earth speak. So right off the bat, we find why we must be watchful. That is, we must be vigilant in, in seeking Christ and keeping our eyes focused upon him and living by faith in this day. Why? Because the nations raged then and the ra- nations are raging now and the nations are going to rage in the future until Jesus comes back and brings it all to an end. And the text tells us in verse 1 that they just don't rage, but they're in a fit of rage. So in verse 1, why do the nations rage? That's the question that is that. Of course, we know it's rhetorical. We know 
that there's no doubt in our minds why the nations rage. All we have to do is to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've gone to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 with you. So I say that only to indicate it's very important. (laughs) Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Because there we find right at the hills of the fall, just after the fall of man into sin had taken place, I will put enmity the Lord says, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, this is the, the text that, that is called the Proto-Euangelion, the first direct reference to the gospel of God providing a, a seed, a savior who will suffer but, but will not be vanquished to overturn the effects of the fall. But it's also a text that reminds us of this ancient conflict that started at the very beginning of human history and that has been raging ever since and raging even today. If you've been with us during our uh, part one of the series of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, we've talked much about the conflict between the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God. And here in Psalm 2, we see that very same conflict being referenced once again where there is an opposition that, that stands against Jesus and, and his, his kingdom. The nations rage today. The nations raged in Daniel's day because of what happens and what is disclosed in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And all of the troubling circumstances that we face today, all of the things that might generate in us fear as we watch out over human history unfolding in our personal lives, in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world, all of those things that, that might cause us to, to uh, fret and to be discouraged, all of those things are rooted in some way right back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This enmity that exists because of man's sinful rebellion against God from the very beginning. And it's ironic that the very ministers God set up As we learn in Romans chapter 13, government, the magistrates, are the very ones that we see here in Psalm 2 that are raging against Jesus. The kingdoms are rebelling in various ways. And they are united. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 2. That they take counsel together. In other words, the kingdoms of men, the kings of this earth that are in one way or another opposed against Jesus and his kingdom, they huddle up and they're agreeing on a plan. You know, it's kind of interesting. Do we have world peace? <laughs> no. We've got nations really upset with one another over all sorts of things, but there's one thing they come together on. They unite together to oppose God. And we find it right here in Psalm chapter 2. They counsel together, they unite together, they join arms, they link arms to stand in opposition against Jesus 
and his kingdom. And the text actually says that they stand against the Lord and his anointed. I want to look for just a moment at, at this noun, anointed, the anointed. We find, if, you, if we were to turn to Psalm 1850, this is what we would read. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offsprings. Now, Psalm 1850 simply reminds us that in the Old Testament, anointed and king are often used together to refer to the same thing, to refer to David and those kings that would come after him as God's anointed, these human rulers. But also in the Old Testament, anointed and king, especially with regards to David and the Davidic dynasty, pointed ahead to the ideal anointed, the ideal king who was Messiah that was to come after David and sit on David's throne forever. And of course, this points to Jesus. You may remember Jesus in Matthew 26, verses 63 through 64, is responding to the great high priest's question, are you the Christ? That is, the high priest was saying, are you Messiah? Are you the one that Psalm 2 is talking about? Are you the one that Psalm 18 is talking about? Are you the one that's been prophesied in the Old Testament to come to sit on David's throne? For you? Are you Messiah? And this is how Jesus answers. Yes, <laughs> it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of, of heaven. Are you Messiah? Jesus was asked. Yeah, I am. In particular, Psalm 2, as we look at, at Jesus identifying himself as that Messiah, as we reflect upon the fact that as Messiah, that he is going to be opposed by these raging nations, we realize that Psalm 2 is really pointing to the ultimate expression of the nation's rage, and here it is, the passion of Christ. The rulers of Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah. And the authorities of the Roman government were co-conspirators in this. And they arrested Jesus, and they convicted Jesus, and they crucified Jesus. So both government in Israel and government in Rome conspired together counsel together, rage together. And the ultimate expression of this warfare was Jesus going to the cross. You may remember Peter and other apostles were caught up in Acts chapter 4 verse 23. They were dragged before the Sanhedrin to answer to this. And after that meeting, they went back to the Christians and they prayed. And this is what they prayed in Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The people of Israel, 
the Gentiles and the rulers of Rome counseling together to wage war against Jesus. It's right here in Acts chapter 4. The nations raging, and the result of that was the passion of Christ. Now, we all know this is by the, by the eternal plan of God for our salvation. So, hallelujah, <laughs> that this little fit of rage took place in one sense. But it just simply shows us that the, king, that the kings of this earth conspired together to wage war against Jesus and we can say his church. And that's their goal. Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What in the world does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means this. They will have, that is, the kings of the earth, the people that are opposed to Christ, will have absolutely nothing to do with submitting to him. Think about bonds and cords being those things that would cause someone to to submit to another. That's the import of these terms. And as these kings of the earth are speaking, they are saying that we will have nothing to do with Christ and his government. We're not going to be bound by him. We're not going to submit to him. Because if we did, this is what would happen. We would have to turn away from our appetites. We could no longer do what we wanted to do. We would have to give up all of our power. We would have to give up our political agenda. We would have to turn from all that would make us feel fulfilled and a real person in order to submit to this Christ. We're not going to do that. And so we see the goal of these kings of the earth, these these opponents of Christ that are in a fit of rage, is to simply destroy the mechanisms and anything that would force them to submit to Jesus. Now, here's the the sad little, I guess, twist of this. The kings of this earth are basically saying this, I'm not going to be yoked under a yoke of this Jesus. But once again, Matthew Henry writes this, Christ has bonds and cords for us. Do you know that if you're in Jesus Christ, that you're all bound up (laughs) with, with bonds and cords in him? And here's why. We are bound up with those uh, gospel, gracious, life-giving, life-saving, redeeming bonds and cords because of what Matthew Henry says next. Those that will be saved by him must be ruled by him. And the kings of the earth say, our goal is to never, ever, ever, ever be ruled by Christ. And we will oppose him at every turn even if it means hell. And by the way, it does mean hell (laughs) if you oppose Jesus and refuse to be bound by his cords. And his cords bring life and life everlasting. And so the nations have spoken in verses 1 through 3 in this fit of rage. They, they've disclosed their plot, their goals, their agenda to oppose Christ, to raise war against him. It's all flowing out of what we learn in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 
15, and now in verses 4 through 6, God speaks. Well, first, actually, God, let's just, this is, we ought to just have a session of holy laughter here, but God laughs. God is seated in heaven, and he laughs at the vain plotting of these kings of earth. Now, Maybe you've experienced this, but but sometimes when I laugh, it's a nervous laugh. Like it's uh, it's it's really out of concern, or maybe it, it's out of of fear. But listen, God is not nervous when He laughs. God is not in a panic when He laughs. God is not terrified when He. I know some people that laugh when they're terrified. Well, God's not terrified. Uh, when he, he laughs. He, he's not in a quandary over what to do because of these plotting rebels. He, he, he laughs, but he's not concerned about that. He's not the least bit concerned about the future of his kingdom. You know, it looked like the nations won when Jesus hung on the cross and his body was then placed in the grave. But remember what we read in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 1, that all of this plotting of these kings of earth is in vain. It is futile to the nth degree. And it's futile to the nth degree because of what we learn in verses 4 through 6, that before the nations even came about in the council of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past, even before anything was created. God decreed Jesus Christ as his begotten Son and King of kings and Lord of lords and mediator and redeemer, and Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, agreed with that. In other words, God's solution to stand against these raging nations would settle before the raging nations were ever even in existence and before anything was in existence. And so no wonder God sits on his throne in heaven and he laughs at the silly, futile attempts of these earthly kings to overthrow this kingdom that began in eternity past before even the world was made. And then in verse 5, we find he not only laughs, as we looked at in verse 4, but his solution is, he makes in his wrath. And what was his solution in verse 6? I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And we, can, we know that Zion is a type of the church. And, and what we can infer from this is that the psalm ultimately points to Jesus being the head of the church as well as sovereign over all. Man, that should give us great hope. That what Psalm 2 is talking about, that this kingdom that that will always be, that that will never be defeated, that the king of that kingdom is the head of the church of which we're a part. Well, this is really bad news for the kings of the earth as we find there in verse 5. That in verse 5 we learn at the end of that that they're terrified over the prospect of this, this king that God has set in Zion actually standing against them as they seek to wage war to defeat Christ and his kingdom. Do you remember what King Herod was really troubled with in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when the, the wise men were seeking the newborn king? 
This is really interesting to me. Because here at Christmas we're celebrating little baby Jesus. And when Herod was interacting with the wise men as he learned of them seeking the newborn king, the text says that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You know why Herod was troubled? Because of what we read here in Psalm chapter 2. That even baby Jesus was terrifying to the earthly kings who would seek to stand against him and to thwart his kingdom. As we've been reading in Daniel, we've been reminded also of God's sovereignty as we read here in Psalm 2 that that God is seated in heaven, a beautiful phrase that points us to, to God being the almighty, the sovereign who laughs at these vain attempts of worldly powers to destroy his anointed one. And remember in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 we read that, that God Almighty, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Psalm 47.9, the nobles of the nations assemble as the people of God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. The kings of the earth belong to God. God sets them up. God takes them down. God is sovereign. This is what Psalm 2 is telling us. This is why God laughs. This is why we should have hope today of this great sovereign God who is bringing about his purposes. Yes, the nations rage. Even today, yes, there is much for you and me to fear as we're, as we're watchful of human history. But God laughs at all of these vain, vain attempts of men to, to frustrate his plan. Jesus is king and Jesus is savior. And those who live their lives in submission and dependence upon him and are part of his kingdom, even today, have hope. Well, let's spend just a few moments looking at the, at the actual nature of Christ's kingdom because we not only find the, the situation set before us of this opposition, but yet God addressing that opposition by setting up this kingdom that can never be thwarted. Let's look now at the kingdom itself and what do we learn. So the kings of the earth have spoken. God has laughed and spoken. And now in verses 7 through 9, the anointed speaks. Think of Jesus speaking here in verses 7 through 9. Now we know that in verse 2, Jesus is described as God's, the Lord's anointed. In verse 6, he's described as the king. Now he's described in verse 7 as God's begotten son. In other words, Jesus coming as Messiah was not some afterthought of God. As we've already talked about, this was something that was settled in eternity past. It wasn't plan B. This was something that was set in stone where in the Council of the Trinity, God developed the plans and the Son agreed to the plan. Jesus agreed to be the anointed one. He agreed to be the king. He agreed to fulfill the, the Son role and to come and be the redeemer and the mediator of God's elect people. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, the Davidic dynasty is spoken of in terms of David being God's son. 
But David being God's son meant that David was God's adopted son, not his natural-born son. And so God adopted David as his son, and then God establishes a sonship relationship with the Davidic line. But all of this is pointing to the fact that there was a promise of an inheritance and a future that one would come after David in his line to sit upon David's throne and reign forever. And of course, that one is not the adopted son, but it's the son we see here in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, the natural-born son, the begotten son, the one who is of the same substance of the Father, the second person of the Trinity that for the purposes of salvation, as we read in Philippians 2, uh, set aside his rightful place in heaven. Not, he didn't, was not divested of deity, but he set his place aside to come down and to die, even death on a cross for us. And so this, this begotten Son of God is the natural Son in the line of David who is the one who will establish that throne for, and sit upon that throne forever. We read about this as prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. And so as we reflect upon When Messiah speaks here now, he is saying that I am God's Son, the begotten Son of God. And I am the one where God said back in Mark chapter 3 and verse 17, when John was baptizing Jesus and after that, this is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. We see this also the transfiguration. In verses 8 and 9, we not only see the identity of the Son, He's not merely the anointed, He's not merely the King, He is the begotten Son of God, the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament to sit upon the Davidic throne forever. But now we look at the the actual nature of Jesus' reign in verses 8 through 9, and we see that He will have dominion over all, that His reign is universal, that it is eternal, that it is absolute. In fact, the nations, the very nations that are raging, in one sense, are also his inheritance, his eternal possessions. And what we need to see here is God's cons- even though these nations are raging against God, God is yet concerned about the nations in the sense that he is gathering his people from the nations and giving them as an inheritance to Christ. And we're part of that. And it's just amazing to me to see the very people that are raging against God, the nations, is the very mission field of God. And we find here a beautiful reference to the Great Commission, Psalm 96 and Matthew 28. And I'm reminded once again at what Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. The nations are Christ. And though they're raging against him, he is standing against them, and from them he is gathering his people. So his reign is universal, it is eternal, it is absolute, it is Jesus's reign, and the world is his, and he is doing what he desires to do, gathering his people to himself from the nations. His reign is also characterized by absolute power. He rules with an iron scepter, we find. 
denoting strength and the exercise of authority. Remember Nebuchadnezzar and the statue, the dream that he had in the statue with the clay feet and the the, uh, clay and iron feet? And that whole thing just reminding us of the fact that God is sovereign over the establishment and the, the downfall of the kingdoms of men. And here we find Christ with this iron. Listen, Christ is in charge of the nations. Christ is in control. Christ is bringing about his purposes. It doesn't matter what the country is. It doesn't matter how mad they are at, at Christ. They, they cannot stand against him because Christ has the iron scepter. At best, they have clay feet. And if they fail to submit, he will crush them and destroy them. The passage that, that Tom read in Hebrews, Your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. And Hebrews 1 reminds us that indeed Jesus is reigning with a scepter. Absolute power. Nothing will prevail against Jesus. And those who oppose him will ultimately be crushed. And I just, I just want to say this because it just sounds so precious to me. <laughs> Christ will have his way. Christ will have his way in my life. My little attempts to be king are vain and God laughs at them. (laughs) Christ is going to have his way in your life. I don't care how bent you are on opposing Jesus in some area or trying to be your own little savior. He is going to have his way in your life. He's going to have his way in our church. He's going to have his way in our city. He's going to have his way in our country. He's going to have his way in our world. Christ is going to have his way. That's what Psalm 2 tells us. And so there's no wonder I'm convinced, I hope you are too, that there is hope for those who are watchful. As we see the glory of Jesus today, in our lives and, and working in this world. And one day, as we read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11, every knee will bow before him. And those kings of the earth that so rage in a fit of rage against Jesus, who are bent on never, ever, 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 ever submitting to him, will bow the knee before Jesus and say, Lord. But it will be too late for them. And they will be cast into hell. Jesus shall reign where'er the Son does his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. The nations rage. God has spoken his solution. Jesus has described himself and his kingdom 
And we end our time today very briefly with this exhortation. And I simply want to say that to kiss the Son is to submit to the Son. And those who submit to the Son will find Jesus as their refuge. And so that's, that's the exhortation that is given here in Psalm 2, where, O kings, be wise, we read in verse 10. O rulers of the earth. In other words, not only the rulers of the earth, not only the rulers, but the ruled are to be wise. And to be wise means is that we serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. In other words, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of men. You have this odd combination of fear of God, reverence for him. He is, he is the one who is awful in majesty, the almighty. So there's reverence, there's fear, there's respect, but it's also to be joy. And, and so here the psalmist tells us that, that one, one response is to come before the Lord with fear, to tremble before him. Because of who he is, the Almighty, but also rejoicing because of what it means to be a part of his kingdom, to be redeemed and to be restored and, and to be whole. And then we read, kiss the Son, which is another way of the psalmist saying, submit to Jesus. One of the greatest acts of submitting to Jesus we find in the Bible is by another really, really bad sinner, the the woman that was caught in adultery, and she paid homage to Jesus by falling upon her face and kissing his feet. That's the response that we should have. Full submission to Jesus as Lord. And so the psalmist says, earthly kings, rulers, Subjects of earthly kings, the ruled, knowing who Jesus is, have you submitted yourself to his gracious rule? Have you kissed the Son? And dear friends, that's true. That's a good question for you and me today. Have we submitted ourselves to Christ? Have we seen the futility of of opposing Christ and the glory of being in full submission to Him, brought under His gracious rule. Are you today like those rulers who are set on not in any way having anything to do with Jesus and coming under His rule because it might mean I can't have fun? Does that describe you today? If that does, you need to understand that The latter part of verse 12, for those who do not kiss the Son, that the Son's wrath will be kindled against them. That's a real proclamation of judgment here. And so there are only two, really two options that we have. We either kiss the Son, live in full submission to Him, and come under His gracious rule, or we continue to oppose Him, we don't kiss Him, and we suffer His anger forever. And the question is, where are you? Which one are you doing? Are you kissing or are you not kissing Jesus? And the same question applies to me as well. 
This has really been a very, very timely uh, message for me today, and I want to close our time just with a story, because the the text brings us to the place, in fact, the the very last statement of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, submitting to Jesus, kissing him really is Coming under his rule, yes, but man, it's taking refuge in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but as I look at my life, as I look at the life of our church, as I look at the life of our country, I really have a heightened sense of needing a refuge because of all the stuff out there that I see that without a refuge would cause me to despair. And let me ask, does that, do you, join me in, in, in that? Am I just totally off my rocker? Do, do you, like me, see your need for a refuge? Well, I'm reminded of the seminary I attended, Gordon Conwell, and Gordon Conwell is position there, the North Shore of Boston. The neighbor of the seminary was the equestrian, U.S. Equestrian Olympic Team Training Center. And I was there back in the early, in the, well, the mid-80s, and it's just a beautiful place, sprawling campus, gorgeous buildings. And the main building, the CARE building, sits on top of the highest point of that entire area, up around South Hamilton, Wenham, Gloucester, Ipswich, Northampton, or Hamilton, rather. And uh, the care building's at the very top of that, that hill, so the seminary can be seen from all over. And atop the care building is this huge, huge cross. I don't know how tall the thing is, but it's, it's gargantuan, and it's illuminated at night. And so it can be seen from miles away on a clear day. And it is as if, in, the, in one of the most spiritually dry places of, of North America, there, there is this this humongous cross that's just radiating out at night across the whole landscape of the North Shore of Boston. And even pilots flying in from Europe can see that cross at night, lighted as they're trying to make their approach in the Boston Logan Airport. And so I went to seminary literally every day studying and living and eating and uh, getting uh, better at being a husband uh, with my new wife underneath that cross and oftentimes I never even realized it was there and here's my point is that that cross was always there that cross what I'm suggesting represents Jesus being always there Jesus, the anointed of the Lord. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the begotten Son of God who came down to save sinners like you and me. Jesus, who is reigning. That cross reminds me that he's always there. He's always above the fray. He's always shining out. He's always in control. He's always sovereign. And nothing, nothing is going to thwart his plan. He will have his way. And today we need to live in light of the fact that we're always under the cross. 
And as we're watchful of human history unfolding today, we're not to fear because of our hope and confidence in Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords and who is our refuge. And so be watchful. Be watchful of Christ and his realities. May our gaze be upward at the cross as we go about living down here on this earth that in so many ways is dark and bleak. I will lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is our refuge. Let's pray. Father, bless us with a renewed zeal for keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus, being watchful of the realities of his kingdom unfolding today, not only looking ahead of the future when he'll come back, we see his glory come in his second advent, but we see his glory being manifested today and how he is sovereignly ruling in our lives and in our church and in our world. That we would have hope because we're watching out for Jesus who will have his way. And we say, hallelujah, come Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.